serve with kids and students, um, having fun really matters. And so part of having fun is often doing some silly things. And so we know that fun over time helps the relationship go deeper. And I want you guys to have that card out as we talk to some of our volunteers and get to hear from them about their experience serving. And so I'm going to have each of them introduce themselves and tell you guys kind of their why. Why did they get started in serving with Power Kids or Student Ministries? My name is Jordan Clark. I work in Student Ministries. And I've been doing it for like nine years now since college. And to be honest, my why is that my girlfriend, who is now my wife, was serving in student ministries in college. So I jumped in also. <laughs> and I'm Kaylee Clark. And um, I started serving in student ministries in 10th grade, um, really because Jesus got a hold of my life in middle school. My name is uh, Chris Meyer. I started serving in Power Kids three years ago. Um, the reason I serve in Power Kids is I love kids, and I'm super goofy. So, <laughs> um, my name's Nicole Macher. I've been serving in Power Kids for about three or four years now, um, and I started. I realized my gift was children and um, teaching them about God. It just meant a lot to me. Awesome. Thanks, guys. So I have a few questions. We're just going to go around a little bit. So, Chris, the first question is for you. Um, can you share with us one of the challenges? Maybe what is that big challenge that we face in our serving? Yeah, so first off, we go by leading small, which is the act of doing for a few what we wish we could do for many. Um, and in Power Kids, one of our biggest challenges is people, volunteers. Um, before we went to four services, an average Sunday for me was 60 kids with two other volunteers and myself. Um, we try to build a relationship with the kids and also with the parents. We want to partner with the parents and, and the kids um, to just help them further their relationship with Jesus. And that's really hard when you're, when you're trying to teach 20 kids by yourself. Um, we just need more people is, is one of the biggest challenges that we have. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. So yeah, like Chris mentioned, that leading small is the act for doing for a few what you wish you could do for many. And, you know, on my own, I can't invest in over 100 kids, but together we can do that. And so Chris has a different few that he's able to intentionally invest in, and Nicole has a different few that she's able to invest in. And the same with Jordan and Kaylee. They have a different few that they're able to invest in, and we need more people so that we can intentionally invest in all of our kids and students. All right, so Kaylee, the next question is for you. Why are you so passionate about investing? Well, like I said earlier, it was in middle school that I had some really awesome leaders who were kind of game changers for me, and they were able to help me catch this fire and vision um, and this mission for Jesus that um, I've really never lost since then, um, thankfully. And it's just such a pivotal time in your life when you're asking questions like self-worth, who am I, um, what am I going to stand for, where's my identity, all these things that are so huge. Uh, and for me, the answer was found in Jesus Christ really because of those leaders. And so that's, I mean, that's it for me. Um, it's a no-brainer. So, you know, we just think it's so important. we got to catch these kids before high school, definitely before college, um, help them understand that Jesus is their answer also, hopefully avoid some of those heartbreak, um, you know, road detours and all that. Um, but most, mostly what we say in middle school all the time is there are no understudies in God's playbook for humanity. And so there are things in this world that just are not going to get done if you do not do them. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Kaylee. That investment, you guys, huge, huge. And to know that as you grew up, you had those key players in your life, those people that stuck out to you, that helped you um, learn about who Jesus is. That's, that's a huge deal. 
All right, so Jordan, if what would you say to someone who's maybe thinking about serving but is maybe on the fence? Um, how would you encourage them? Sure. Um, what I would say is we have so many different needs, so we're not going to, like, throw you on stage in front of everybody the first week you're up there, right? We need people to lead a game or lead a discussion group with the questions that we give you. Um, like, for me personally, I think teaching is probably not my natural spiritual gift, but that was that was a need, so I... I was, took a step of obedience, and I did it, and I feel like God has, has blessed that and has grown me a lot in that. And also, like, since Kaylee and I have been doing this for so long together, it, it's become a, a huge facet of our relationship that's allowed us to grow a lot closer together. And it's, it's forced accountability for me, too, to stay in God's word because I'm, I'm teaching these kids, you know, and I don't want to need to make sure I'm plugged in before I teach anybody else. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Jordan. All right, Nicole, the same question for you. How would you encourage someone that maybe is thinking about serving, but isn't quite sure, how would you encourage them? Um, there's a few things that come to mind for me is um, how I feel for the rest of the week after I've been teaching with the kids. Um, there's a special bond that you get with them, especially you're with them for a few years. Um, and it's really neat too when you even hear from parents that like their kids were talking about you during the week and they they miss, you know, miss Nicole. And, um, and also, uh, if you're like me and you love giving gifts, um, the best gift that you can give to a child is the gift of knowing Jesus and knowing God and having eternity with them, you know? Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, that investment is, is so huge. I think it's clear from what you guys shared that, that kids are worth it, that investment is worth it, that time putting in is worth it. You know, Power Kids and Student Ministries is not babysitting. Sometimes people think like, oh, well, we have big church and our kids are over here and they're just being watched. And that's, that is not the case at all. This is really about disciple making for us, that, that intentional events, investment with each of the kids, each of the students, pointing them to who Jesus is and how much Jesus loves them. And so I want to leave you guys with these two questions. Um, do you believe that kids and students matter? And if so, what is something that you could do about that? And so those cards that you guys have in front of you, that's an opportunity for you guys to say yes to kids and students. Um, think about that, pray about that, fill out that card if that's something that you are even remotely interested in. There's, like Jordan said, there's a lot of ways that we can help get you connected. And so if you're just thinking, yeah, I don't know what that looks like, we'll help you figure out what that looks like. And so take a minute, fill out that card. You can put that in the basket uh, during offering and then we'll connect with you guys this week of some more opportunities and what that looks like to get connected and empower kids and student ministries. So um, yeah, just guys, imagine what it could look like if you guys said yes to the next generation. Awesome. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome out to the second week in a series that we are in. We've been calling the Everyday Revolution, and uh, if you are just jumping in with us today, if you're a guest here at the Medina East Campus or you missed last week, uh, basically what we've been doing in this series, just to kind of give you a quick update, is we're actually taking the next several weeks to study something uh, that we said that the Bible teaches that is sometimes called the household codes. And so this is actually what we're kind of looking at together, sort of studying together in the Bible, uh, are these patterns passages of scripture that are kind of found all throughout the New Testament, and they really kind of deal with everyday relationships. And so last week, if you missed last week, uh, by the way, I'd encourage you, you can go back and check that out if you want to. Uh, you can go to our website or you can check out our podcast and you can listen to last week's conversation. But really, we kind of talked about what are the household codes? Uh, where are they? Where did they come from? How are we to kind of understand them in a modern day setting? And so we talked about that a little bit last week. But we said that really the household codes are found 
throughout kind of a smattering of New Testament passages. And so here's just kind of a picture of the different places where you will find the household codes all throughout the New Testament. And again, we said the household codes, when you look at them, um, that they deal with really everyday relationships. It's kind of the, kind of the, the, the point of the household codes. And so they deal with, for example, marriage. Uh, the household codes deal with parenting. Uh, the household codes deal with work-related relationships. Uh, they speak into generation considerations, how older and younger generations should interact with each other. Uh, it actually even interacts with gender, gender roles and things along those lines. And, and so we said that, man, these are just some really, really powerful passages of the Bible. And we said that this would just be an awesome, awesome series for us to go through and, t- and look at together the household codes. And really, here's the question that we're trying to answer together through this series. It's basically this. Does God have an ideal for our everyday relationships? That's really kind of, kind of, to put it bluntly, what it is that we're looking at. So does God have an ideal for the way that we interact in marriage? Does God have an ideal for the way that we approach parenting? Does God have an ideal in mind for the way that genders work, gender roles and gender considerations? Are are all of those things just kind of up for interpretation? And does each culture just kind of, you know, basically define those things on their own terms? And and so that's what we've been looking at together as we've been looking at the household codes. And so uh, throughout the next several weeks, we're looking at several different everyday relationships and talking about what the Bible teaches about those things. And so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the first relationship that is most frequently found in all of the household codes, and that's this. We're going to be looking today, starting the conversation about marriage. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what does the Bible speak about marriage. In the next coming weeks, we're going to, we're going to deal with that even for the next couple of weeks. We're also going to talk about singleness as well. Now, I know that, um, that when I say, hey, tonight we're talking about marriage, for some of you, especially if you're a single person, we actually have a lot of singles that go to our church here at Grace, you might be thinking, oh, man, man, this doesn't really apply to me, Right? And so, and so you're like, we're talking about marriage, and I'm a single person, and so I guess I should probably just kind of tune out for the next couple of weeks, or you might be tempted to kind of disengage in the conversation for the next couple of weeks. But I, of course, would encourage you not to do that. And, and the reason I would encourage you, if you're single or if you're a student right now, not to disengage with a conversation about marriage is because even though it, it might not apply to you immediately today, now there's really a couple of reasons I think it's important that you do. And so here's the first one. The first one is uh, because if you're a single person, Uh, there is a very, very good chance that one day you will be married. And of course, as a single, you might desire to be married, or as a single, uh, hopefully in the future one day, it's kind of one of your plans and one of your priorities to be married. Actually, it's interesting. There was a study that was done recently, and contrary to popular belief, many people believe that today uh, marriage is less popular than it has been in the past, and that's actually not true. Uh, Actually, statistics have shown uh, that that 78% of millennial women and 70% of millennial men Uh, put on their list of priorities. One of their top priorities is to have a healthy marriage. And so even though people are getting married later, it's actually the same percentage of people, 80% of people get married, and that's the same as it was in 1960 and in 1970. And so many of you who are single, probably one day, or maybe you desire to to be married. And I believe, honestly, that the best time that you can begin investing in a great marriage, the best time is before you get married. And so I think that if you're a single person, you're actually at a place of advantage and because many of us know it is easier to build than it is to rebuild. And so you have an opportunity to lay down a great foundation, and that's kind of our hope in this conversation. Uh, the other thing I would say is this. Some of you might be single, or maybe you're divorced or recently divorced, and you might be thinking to yourself, I don't ever want to be married. 
Um, I'm, I'm completely content where I am or I was in a marriage before and I don't want to be married again and so I'm just kind of fine where I'm at. And let me just say about that real quick, that if you're single and you're like, I don't plan to get married, I'm content being single, if that's where you are, I just want to affirm that we actually think that that's pretty awesome. And, uh, and unfortunately, we live in a culture today uh, where sometimes people will say, well, look at singleness like it's a disease. Uh, unfortunately, there's churches that look at singleness like it's a disease. And so they'll look at you and say, oh, you're single? Oh, that's okay. We'll pray for you. And maybe one day God will bring that person around to you. And, and we think that's actually tragic because, because we would look uh, at what the Bible teaches and we'd say that actually we think singleness is a gift. Uh, we think that singleness, that you're not incomplete if you're single. Uh, we don't believe any of that. In fact, we're going to talk at a couple weeks about uh, the Bible and what it teaches about, about singles and, and some of that. However, the reason I think this might be an important conversation for you, even if you intend to never get married, is because my hope is that today that I can explain, and I'm hoping I can do this, that I can explain that marriage is actually not something that is simply for married people. I know that sounds really weird, but I think what you're going to see today is that when we look at the biblical picture of marriage, what we're going to find is that marriage is not just a gift to married people. Marriage is actually intended to be a gift to the world. And it's supposed to be something that is a gift for all people, whether you're single or you're married. And in the same way that I believe if you're single, your singleness is a gift from God to the world, I believe that marriage is a gift from God to the world. And my hope is uh, that as we talk about that today, that maybe you'll kind of get a picture of what I'm talking about. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to go to probably the most premier passages on marriage in the entire Bible. It is by far the lengthiest household code of all of them, and that is in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me, and we're going to flip to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be spending the duration of our time today. And like I mentioned, here you have the lengthiest household code of all of them, and you actually have the most comprehensive picture of marriage in the entire Bible. Okay, so this is the most extensive picture of marriage uh, that we have in all of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. And by the way, if you did not bring a Bible with you here today, that's not a problem whatsoever. We have some Bibles for you uh, that should be in the chairs underneath you or in front of you. And you can grab those and turn to page 816. You'll find Ephesians chapter 5 there. And then, of course, let me just also mention, if you don't own a Bible, like if you just don't have a copy of God's Word, we think it's so important that you have one. And so you can just take one of our Bibles, make that a gift from us to you, and uh, we, we would encourage you to take it home and read it. Okay, so in Ephesians 5, that's where we're going to kind of be planting ourselves today. Now, as we jump into Ephesians 5, I want to I just start by saying something that's going to sound really obvious but I think it's super important to our conversation, and that's, that's this, okay? Um, as all of us know, the first step of any journey is knowing your destination, right? Uh, the beginning point of any journey or any trip that you take is to first know where it is that you're going. It's to think with the end in mind. And so silly example, just, just imagine with me for a minute that you're going to go on a trip, and so you get your bag and you pack it, and then you get in your car and you get ready to go, and you open up your GPS on your phone, right? What is the first thing that your GPS is going to ask you, ask of you? Is it going to ask you to turn right or to turn left? Is it going to ask you to go east or west? Is your GPS going to ask you to do a U-turn, and if it's like mine in a British accent, like is that what it's going to do? And of course the answer is no, it's not going to tell you to do any of those things, because the first thing it's going to ask of you is your destination, it's going to say, where are you going? Because you know this as well as I do. Your, your, your GPS can't give you the best course of action if it doesn't know the coordinates of where it is that you're headed. And so the first part, the first step of any journey is really knowing your destination. Where is it that you're going? 
And if you know where you're going, that kind of helps determine the decisions that you make along the way. Now, that's true with many things in life, is that you want to start with the end in mind, right? If I was to do a jigsaw puzzle, a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle, which I never do. I don't know why that's the illustration that I came up with. But if I was to do that, what would I do? I'd take that box, I would empty out the contents on a table, and then the next thing I would do is I would take the picture on the front of the box and I would perch it somewhere so that I could reference it, right? And I would keep that picture in front of me as a reference guide while I was constructing that puzzle. I would want to have the end in mind. I would want to know what is the big picture that, that, that guides and is the reference point as I make this puzzle. Now, now here's why I, I bring this up. The reason I bring this up is to ask this question. What is the goal... What is the destination, what is the ultimate picture that is intended with marriage, right? A lot, a lot of times we enter into marriage, and here, here's the thing. A lot of times we enter into marriage, and I think for many of us, we actually have a picture in mind. We have a goal, and we have, whether you know it or not, whether you've identified it or not, many of us actually have a picture of what we think a marriage should look like. And my question is, what is that picture, Right? Because I think if I, went, if I went around and I asked you, do you want a picture-perfect marriage? I think a lot of you would say, yes, I want a picture-perfect marriage. But there's a more important question, and that's this. What picture are you talking about? What is the picture that you're hoping to paint with your marriage relationship? And again, I think it's a really important question because I think whether we know it or not, whether, whether we're aware of it or not, many of us actually have a picture of what we think the ideal marriage should be look like. And here we're going to find in Ephesians, like I said, we're going to find what I believe is God's ideal. Okay, this is God's pick, the picture that God intends to paint with marriage, the reference point in which all of marriage is built off of. But before we look at Ephesians chapter 5, I think it actually might be helpful if I could just kind of do this. If I could mention three pictures that I think people today commonly build marriage off of. Okay, so we're going to look at Ephesians here in a second, and you're going to see, of course, that Ephesians is pretty countercultural, right? That probably goes without saying. We kind of talked about that last week. But let me just talk first about three pictures that I think people in our, in our culture today tend to build marriage off of. Now, by the way, let me just mention that these three I'm talking about are just my opinion. Um, I am not a marriage expert by any stretch of the imagination. However, I can say that in the past decade of doing ministry, I have done over 60 weddings and have done premarital counseling for most of those couples. And so what I'm talking about is from the experiences that I've had uh, kind of dealing with couples and sort of going into marriage. And so here are, at least in my opinion, the three most common pictures that people base marriage off of today in our culture. Okay, the first one is this. I call it the e-harmony picture. Okay, the e-harmony picture. Now, what am I talking about when I say the e-harmony picture. Well, let me just clarify for a minute that if you're a person that met your spouse or maybe you met the person you're with right, right now um, on an internet dating site, I am not at all dissing you, all right? I think that that is a perfectly legitimate way to meet people, and so that's not what I'm getting at. But here's what I mean, is if you've ever seen e-harmony commercials or commercials for other online dating sites, they oftentimes communicate a message, don't they? And what is the message they communicate? Well, well here it is in a nutshell. The e-harmony message, as I call it, is basically this, that the key to having a perfect relationship and the key to having a perfect marriage is finding the perfect person. And so if you, if you marry the right person, then you're going to have a thriving relationship. But if you marry the wrong person, 
and then your then your relationship is is going to be is ultimately going to be bad and it's not going to end the way that you kind of hope for so the key to having a perfect marriage then is finding the perfect person so you got to find the person that's most compatible with you right you got to find a person who matches your personality who is complementary to you right you have to find a person that that like you remember Jerry Maguire remember that scene uh, when Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger and he says, you complete me. You guys remember that? You're, you're looking for that person. You're, you're saying, I'm looking for someone to complete me. And if I can just find Mr. Right, if I can just find Mrs. Right, Miss Right, who will become Mrs. Right, right? if I can just find that person, then that's going to make my marriage thriving. That's going to give me a healthy marriage. And you see, what this does is it really endorses this mentality that the key to, to a great marriage is that you have to find the one, right? The elusive the one. And there is that one that's out there, and they are my soulmate. They complete me, right? They are the yin to my yang. They are the peanut butter to my jelly, right? They are the fruit to my loom, which, by the way, if you're looking for a great pickup line, guys, there it is right there, right? You're the fruit to my loom, baby. And, uh, but that, that's kind of the, what the message is, right? It's that I'm incomplete. It's that I got to find someone out there. I have to find the one, and they're eventually going to find, that, that's how I'm going to find fulfillment in relationships. Now, here's the problem with this, with this picture, and, and many of you uh, probably have thought this already. But the problem, the problem is this, is that when you live with that idea that there's one person out there that's going to complete me, and I have to find the right person, it can create a whole lot of confusion and uncertainty, uh, both before you're married and after you're married. And so, for example, before you're married, if, if you're convinced that you have to find the one and I have to find the right person, you can live under the tyranny and the fear of just constantly second-guessing whether or not this person is the one or not. And so every relationship that you're in, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. If he, is he the one? Is she the one? I'm not sure. And so there are legions of blogs and articles that are written about how do you know that he, how do you know that she is the one? And it creates a whole bunch of uncertainty. It creates a whole bunch of turmoil in a person and a lot of confusion before marriage. And it creates a whole lot of confusion and uncertainty after marriage. And so if you, have the, if you go into marriage with the e-harmony picture, that this person is going to complete me, that this person is going to fulfill me, then ultimately what happens is when you get married, and you might be convinced this person is the one, but then all of a sudden there's a personality clash or all of a sudden you find that you're disagreeing about something or arguments happen. All of a sudden you can start to feel like, uh-oh, maybe I married the wrong person and maybe I missed the one. Maybe the right person is still out there and I accidentally married the wrong person. And you see what happens is once you start thinking this way, it leads to some very, very dangerous lines of thinking. This is, this is at the root of so many affairs, this is at the root of so many uh, social media connections that happen through Facebook where people connect with past flings because they think to themselves, I accidentally married the wrong person, that was the right person, and so I need to get out of this, in order to be fulfilled, I need to get out of this relationship and I need to get in this other relationship because that person is the right one. And the key to having a good marriage, to having a perfect marriage, is making sure that I find the perfect person. See, eHarmony, it's the eHarmony picture. And, and, and here's the thing. Many marriages have been built on, and unfortunately, many marriages have collapsed because they've been built around this picture, the eHarmony picture. Because that's picture number one. Second, it's probably one of the second most common pictures I think I've, we've seen in our culture is something uh, that I call the romantic comedy picture, right? The romantic comedy picture. Of course, what I'm referring to here is I'm referring to uh, the romantic 
marriage picture that Hollywood oftentimes propagates, right? And do you guys ever notice that in every romantic comedy that is out there, uh, that every romantic comedy movie follows the exact same plot line? Do you ever notice this? Like, it's almost formulaic, uh, the way that it goes. And it basically goes something like this. You're first introduced to the characters in romantic comedy right before they meet each other. And so you're introduced to the characters, and then pretty quickly, something happens, and through some circumstance, these two people meet each other, and they come to realize that everything in their lives was leading up to this moment, right? And then they meet each other, and then there's always an exchange of some kind of witty banter, and then there's always some kind of like complicated, confusing situation that takes place, and they miscommunicate, but then it kind of resolves itself in a very charming way, right? And Ryan Gosling is almost always involved for some reason, right? And then after all that happens, then they, they end up finding true love, and they end up finding romance, and then it, it almost formulaic almost formulaically, these movies almost always end at either a wedding or a dance or a prom or some kind of big event and they end up getting married or they end up finding true love and then after that happens, the credits roll and the movie fades out, right? But did you ever notice with these movies that there's never a sequel to any of them, right? And why is that? Well, because if you were to follow up with a sequel of a married couple after the romantic situation happened, I think Hollywood would deem that pretty boring, right? Who wants to watch a movie about a couple that's exhausted after work that comes home and picks up the kids and, and then reheats food, you know, leftovers from the day before and then in their sweatpants watches the Cavs game? Like, who wants to watch that movie, right? But, but that is usually what married life ends up looking like. But what does this communicate then? Here's what it communicates. It communicates that romance that the thrill of romance is the highlight of life and everything else is, is, is prologue and is postlogue. Everything else in life is either leading up to or it is all descending from the big, climactic, romantic thrill of things. And so what happens then is sometimes couples will look at this and they'll say, well, that's the picture that we want to kind of paint and model our marriage after. And so many couples, they, they come into marriage with this, with this thrill, with this, this kind of this Hollywood romance kind of hope and dream. But then what happens, of course, as many of you know who, who are married, that what begins to happen is that the romance begins to fade. And all of a sudden, you start to see that what came effortlessly when you were dating now takes effort, takes work. And so now, when, when that happens, couples begin to think, uh-oh, that must mean there's something wrong with the relationship. And so if we cannot keep the romantic fire burning and if things don't come effortlessly, then that must mean there's a problem with our marriage. And so we will either give up on each other or we'll try to go and find a different romantic fling somewhere else. And again, I've seen a ton of marriages that have been built on and unfortunately have collapsed on this picture. Here's the third picture, picture number three, and then we'll, we'll move on to the, the biblical picture. This is something that is called the me marriage picture. Now, this term, me marriage, is actually not one that, that originated with me. This actually came from a New York Times article that was written a few years ago uh, by a contributor named Tara Parker Pope. And in uh, this article, Tara Parker Pope, the, the actual article was called The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. That's what it was called. And here's what she says. I'll just show you an excerpt from this New York Times article. She said, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about the, the relationship, putting the relationship first? Not anymore, she says. She goes on to say this. In modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting. 
Having a partner who is funny or creative adds something new to someone who isn't. A partner who is an active community volunteer creates new social opportunities for a spouse who spends long hours at work. If your partner is helping you become a better person, then you become happier and you become more satisfied in the relationship. So, so what is Tara Parker Pope saying in this? Well, here's what she's ultimately saying. She's saying the me marriage is essentially a marriage that is built off of two people who are both committed to mutual, uh, mutually benefiting from one another. It's a basically, it's a contractual arrangement, right? It, it, almost, it almost works like a consumeristic relationship that I'm going to provide certain goods and services and my expectation is that you're going to reciprocate that by providing goods and services for me. So as long as what you're doing in the relationship is serving to my advantage and what I'm doing in the relationship is serving, serving to your advantage and so it's a win-win relationship, then this is what a healthy marriage looks like, right? It's a, I give a little, I get a little. You give a little, you get, a, you know, that, that, that kind of that whole thing. And, and basically, a relationship like this works as long as each person is contributing to the bottom line. As long as each person is profiting from the relationship, this model works. But the problem is, and many of you guys know this, that the moment that one person feels like they are, they are expending more than they're receiving, the moment that a person feels like, wait a minute, I keep giving and giving and giving and I feel like it's unbalanced and I feel like I'm not benefiting in this relationship but I feel like I'm sacrificing and serving and not getting anything in return, well, this whole thing breaks apart. This whole thing breaks apart. And that, I would say, honestly, is at the root of so many marital conflicts where you have couples that are saying, well, I did this and I did this and she never and I always and she didn't and I do and he never and I always. And it always becomes about this, about the, the bottom line is uh, that I don't, I'm not getting fulfilled, you're not getting fulfilled. And so because of that, because I'm not getting fulfilled, that means that I don't have to uh, keep my end of the bargain, right? It's the me-centered marriage. Now, now here's the thing. I, I show you all of these different pictures, and I'm sure there's probably more than that, but I show you these pictures basically to ask you this question. Okay, here's a question I want to ask you. What is your marriage picture? All right? Because like I said, whether you know it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, you probably have an ideal picture in your mind of what you believe a good marriage should look like. You probably have that. And so my question is, what is that for you? What is that picture? It might be some of what I mentioned, it might be a combination of a few of the things I mentioned. It might be none of what I mentioned. For some of you, you might say, you know, the picture-perfect the picture perfect marriage for me looks like my parents. Or you might say, the picture-perfect marriage for me looks like my grandparents. Or maybe for you, you're like, honestly, I don't have a good marriage picture. All I have is a bunch of really bad marriage pictures. I know what marriage shouldn't look like. That's all I know. I don't know what it should look like. I just know what it shouldn't look like because my parents had a bad marriage and my uncle had a bad marriage. My grandparents had a good marriage. And even though they stayed married, they weren't happy, right? And so I don't want that marriage. And so, and so the question, though, is think about it. What is that picture that you have? For marriage, because here's what's going to happen in Ephesians. Ephesians is going to lay out for us, like I said, what I believe is God's picture for marriage. The picture that, that God says, here's the one that I'm hoping that you will paint. And this picture, like I said, is counterintuitive. It's countercultural, not just to our culture, but to every culture. But I believe it is the most beautiful picture of marriage that we have. So let's take a look at it together. Ephesians 5, we'll start in verse 21. Here's where the Apostle Paul starts. He's starting his household code. He's starting his teaching on marriage. And here's the beginning point in verse 21. He says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, let's just pause there for a minute because this is a huge statement. Now, a lot of times, um, 
when, when we see this word, the first word that's used here, submit, uh, that is a cringeworthy word in our culture. But I find it really fascinating that when the Apostle Paul begins his teaching on marriage and on relationships, he says, here's the starting point. The starting point is that we are to submit. That's how it all begins. That, that this is kind of the foundation of relationships as God desires them, is this word submit. But, you know, a lot of times when we talk about this word submit, uh, in our culture, like I said, it's a cringeworthy culture. But usually when we talk about the Bible's teaching on submission, what we tend to think of is we actually tend to think of the Bible saying that wives should submit to husbands, which is true, by the way. The Bible does say that in the very next verse, in verse 22. But I think it's important that before we get to verse 22, that we read verse 21, right? And what's verse 21 say? It says to submit, now notice this, submit to who? To one another. He says, he says Paul says, everybody should be submitting to everybody. It's this idea of, of, some people call it mutual submission, mutual submission, which is really fascinating because some of you might be thinking, well, how does that even look? What does that even mean to mutually submit to one another? Well, I think that the key to understanding this is really understanding this word that's used here, submit. So the word submit um, in, in the original language, what it, what it literally means is it means to place oneself under. It's, it's to order yourself under another person or someone else. It actually was a military term. Uh, that was used. I've, I've had people that said, I hate the word submit. It sounds so hierarchical. Well, it is kind of hierarchical because it literally means to order yourself under another. But the fact that he says here that we are to submit to one, or, one another out of reverence to Christ, here, here's what I think the Apostle Paul has in mind. I'll give you a definition of what I think he means by submit. Here, here's, here's the definition I would put on it. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is saying, that to submit is to leverage all of myself for the benefit of somebody else. I think this is what he's saying. He's saying this is what it means to submit. It means that I'm, gonna, I'm willingly going to come up under in my relationships. I am going to come up under you, and I am going to leverage all of me. I'm going to leverage all of my strength. I'm going to leverage all of my talent. I'm going to leverage all of my, you know, power, and I'm going to leverage all of that, what? For you, for your benefit, for your needs, for your fulfillment. Right? And so instead of, instead of me coming underneath, instead of me coming to you looking that you would exalt me, I'm actually coming to you and I'm looking to exalt you. I want to come up underneath you and I want to leverage all of me, not for the promotion of myself, not for the exaltation of myself, but ultimately for, for, for your sake. For your, and so, so here's what he says. Now, by the way, this flies in the face, this idea here, flies in the face of the me marriage. Because the me marriage says that the, the number one concern in marriage is that I look to get my needs met. And as long as my needs are getting met, then I, I can turn around and I can help serve your needs. But the moment that you're not meeting my needs, I'm not going to do anything to help meet your needs. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the beginning point in a relationship is actually this idea of submitting to one another. It's where each person comes into the relationship and says, my primary concern is not self-exaltation or self-protection. My primary concern is actually to exalt and to serve and to love and to promote you. And that's the beginning point, the Apostle Paul says. Now, some of you are like, okay, that sounds really good. That's not possible. That is just not possible. But I want you to notice the next thing he says. How is this possible? Well, look what he says. Submit to one another. Here's the key. Out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence, out of reverence 
The idea here is respect, out of respect, out of response, out of worship, out of love, out of recognition for Christ. Now, I want you to notice what he says here because this is so important. The apostle Paul doesn't say, submit to one another, serve one another, come up underneath someone else and leverage yourself for the sake of someone else. He doesn't say, submit to one another out of reverence for that person. That's not what he says. Don't, don't do that because the, because the person deserves it. You don't, you don't submit yourself because the person is worthy of it and they've earned it. He says, no, 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 you do it out of reverence for Christ. In other words, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The reason that a person is able to do this, to submit themselves to another person, to come up and think about their needs above their own, is because they're not looking to another person to fulfill them. They're looking to Jesus, to Christ, as the only one who can fulfill them. What they're saying is, it's out of reverence and out of worship and out of love for Jesus that I am able to serve and love another person. That's what's motivating me to do this. Now, now by the way, here's, here's why I think that's so important. Because that, that goes directly against this e-harmony idea, right? Because what is the e-harmony myth? Here's the e-harmony myth. The e-harmony myth is the key to having a good relationship is that I have to find the right person. And if I can find that person who completes me, if I can find that person who's just the right match for me, that, you know, I just can't find the wrong person. I need to find the right person. If I can just find the right person, then I'll be fulfilled, then I'll be satisfied, and then I'll be happy. But listen, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that contrary to the e-harmony myth, that there, that there is no such thing as the right person. That, that everyone, you've, listen, you've always married the wrong person. All right? So if you're married and your spouse is next to you, look at them right now and say, I married the wrong person. You could tell them that, right? Why? Because, and here's why, right? Because the Bible says that there is no such thing as the right person. Every single one of us is sinful. Every single one of us is imperfect. And because of that, there is no one person who can bear the weight of your soul. You cannot look to another person to fulfill you because another person, the Bible says, can never fill the role of the only one who can bring fulfillment to you. And who is that? Christ. Christ is the only one who can bring true fulfillment to you, right? I, uh, I remember I was, I was uh, there's a uh, pastor that I really appreciate and respect. His name is J.D. Greer. I think he's down in the North Carolina area, but he said something I thought was so good, and I just, I completely agreed with what he said. But he was talking about, um, did you guys ever drive down country roads, and then you see those, bri- there's like those bridges, and they have like a weight capacity on them? It says like, you know, weight, capa- weight limit, like so many ton- tons, like not able to, you know, take more weight than this. You guys ever see that before? What's that sign telling you? Well, that sign is telling you that if you're driving a semi or you're driving a big truck, this bridge cannot sustain the weight of that truck, right? It just can't do it. And here's what J.D. Greer said. I love this. He said, a lot of times when I do married, like weddings, he said, I want to grab a, sharp, a Sharpie marker and I want to write on the foreheads of both the husband and the wife, cannot sustain the weight of your soul. And just put that. And here's why. Because a lot of people come into marriage and when they come into marriage, they look at the other person and say, I believe that you are the one who's going to bring me fulfillment and satisfaction in this life. You're the one that completes me. You're the one who fulfills me. And I'm looking at you to do that. But the problem is no human being can sustain the weight of your soul. Nobody can. The only one who can sustain the weight of your soul is Jesus Christ alone. He's it. And you see, here, here's, here's what I found to be true. 
When you have lonely, unhappy, insecure single people who then get married, they turn into lonely, insecure, unhappy married people. Why is that? Because, because marriage is not the solution to fulfillment. That's not it. Another person can't, if I was to look at my wife, Jessica, and I was to say, I believe that you're the one who is responsible for my fulfillment, that you are the one who is to complete me and to satisfy me. Listen, I would crush her with my expectations. She is not designed to sustain that load. Only Christ alone is designed to sustain that load. And so here's what he says. He says, we're to submit to one another, look at this, out of reverence for Christ. It's out of love and out of worship, not for the other person, but for Jesus. And this is, by the way, why if you're a married person and you follow Jesus, and I know not everyone in this room follows Jesus, but if you are a follower of Jesus and you're married to someone who does not follow Jesus, for some of you, you might be thinking, well, how am I supposed to love and serve them if they're not committed to loving and serving me the way that Christ does? Here's why. Because you're not doing it out of reverence for them. You're not doing it because they deserve it. You're not doing it because they've earned it and because they've reciprocated it. You're doing it out of worship and love and reverence for Christ. And this is also, by the way, why if you're a single person, if you're a single person right now, why it is so important that if you follow Jesus, when you go to marry somebody, that the Bible says that you look for someone who is equally yoked. And what that means is you look for someone who has the same spiritual goals and the same spiritual interests as you. Why is that so important? Because if you have two people who go into marriage who are looking to paint two totally different pictures, you are setting yourself up for deep frustration. You will be frustrated because you're both trying to paint different pictures. But when you have two people who are trying to paint this picture out of reverence, not for each other, but out of reverence for Jesus, I believe it leads to the picture that God intends, the picture that God wants for marriage. And that is ultimately this beautiful picture. He goes on, here's what he says. I think this is so great. So now he's gonna go on after saying this. Here's the beginning point of painting the right picture for marriage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he says. Now he's gonna go on and talk about, so what does that mean, practically speaking, for wives? And what does that mean for husbands? So here's what he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything, okay? So here's what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul says, okay, so we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So wives, what does it look like you, what does it look like for you to submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ? And so he goes on to explain it. He says, it looks like wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. That's what he says. Now, here's the thing. That's a loaded passage. And so what we're gonna do for the next couple of weeks, next week, we're gonna talk only to wives. So the whole week next week, we're gonna be dealing with these passages and other passages like it that talk about the wives' role in marriage, okay? So we will tackle this bear and I will fall on this grenade next week, all right? And we'll talk about that. And actually, it's pretty exciting. My wife has asked her to help me with this. And so you're actually gonna hear from both of us. So she's, she's agreed to come up here and help me kind of talk through this a little bit. But we're gonna talk about what does that mean, practically speaking, for a wife to play this part in marriage. And then after that, by the way, the week after that, uh, which is Mother's Day, we're gonna talk to husbands. And so we did that strategically because we wanted to give you wives and you mothers a gift. And we said, you know what, on Mother's Day, uh, the gift that we wanna give you is a nice swift kick in the pants to your husband, right? And uh, myself included, right? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Not really, actually, that's exactly what's gonna happen. And so it's gonna be awesome. But, uh, 
we'll do that. But here's what he says to husbands. Let's see this. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one's ever hated their own body, but they feed it and they care for their body just as Christ does the church. And for we are members of his body. And so he goes on and talks about, he says, now what does it look like for husbands to submit themselves to their wives out of reverence to Christ? And he explains that, which we're going to talk about on Mother's Day. And now here's where I really want to kind of tune in. I want you to notice verse 31 and verse 32. Check this out. The Apostle Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and he will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now that's a really peculiar thing to say in the middle of this. He says, for this reason, for this reason, for what reason? For this reason, a man's gonna leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's a really weird thing to say in the middle of this passage. But I want you to notice, if you haven't already, in your Bibles, that there are quotation marks on this statement that he says. And why are there quotation marks? Well, it's because he's quoting, Right? And what is he quoting? He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, if you're familiar with your Bible, you might remember Genesis 1, 2, and 3, first three books of the Bible, are the creation account in which it explains how God creates all things, how God made all things. And in Genesis chapter 2, what do you see? You see the very first marriage between the very first parent, uh, very first people. And so who is he, what's he referring to here? He's referring to the first marriage that God created, the first marriage that God made. And he says, for this reason. What reason? In other words, why is there marriage? And then he says this. This is awesome. He says, this is a profound mystery. What's a profound mystery? Marriage. And all God's people said, amen. Right? It's a profound mystery. But by the way, point of clarification, whenever the Bible says mystery, it doesn't mean something that's hard to understand. That's not what it means. It actually means this is something that has not yet previously been disclosed. And he says, so this is something that previously was not disclosed, but now it's made known. And what is it? He says, here's what, Paul says, here's what marriage is all about. Do you want to know what the picture is? What, what the destination is? Do you want to know what the end goal is for marriage? He says, here it is. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is ultimately about this. It's a picture of this. It's intended to paint a portrait of Christ and the church. That is to say that marriage is intended to be a portrait of the selfless, sacrificial love that Jesus Christ has shown his people, the church. The church, by the way, is not talking about a building. It's talking about the people who follow Jesus. And it's supposed to be a picture not only of the sacrificial love of Jesus, but also the reciprocal love of the church to its Savior. He says that is what marriage is supposed to be. It is intended to be that picture. And you guys, I think that that is so important. And there's really, I think it says two things to us that are really significant. And that's this. Here's the first one. What this tells us is that marriage is created by God. And I know that might sound super obvious, but I think that that's unbelievably profound. And here's why. There's a lot of people that look at marriage and they say, oh, marriage, that's, it's anthropological, right? It's man-made. Thousands of years ago, some primitive humans came up with this social institution called marriage. And so because of that, marriage is whatever we want it to be, 
right? And, and, and marriage has evolved and it changes and the meaning of it is up to you. You can attribute whatever meaning you want to marriage. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, oh, no, 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 no. Marriage is not anthropological. Marriage is theological. God is the one who made marriage. God is the one who created it. And so what that means is this, is that because God created it, that it has a created intent. There is an intended design to marriage is what the Bible tells us. And what is the design? Well, here it is again, the second thing. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. That when God made marriage, he said, here's the intent. Here's what I want it to be. I want it to be a picture. I want it to be an image. I want it to be an illustration of what? of an unearthly love, a love that you can't find anywhere on this planet. I want it to be a picture that helps you and helps your spouse and helps the world know that this is a little bit of what God is like. That's what I intend through marriage. That marriage is not just for married people, marriage is for the, wor marriage is for the world. And God created it to be something that is an illustration and a picture of a type of love that you cannot find on this side of heaven. And that's what marriage is intended to be, he says. Think about it this way. So uh, a couple months ago, I, was on, I, went, I had to travel to Seattle for work. And so I was in Seattle, and of course, every time I travel, I always miss my family. I was only gone for a few days. But I was, you know, I have some kids at home, and I have a little girl, a little princess. She's only a year old. And so it's always hard to leave because you, just, you miss your kids, you miss your family. And so whenever I, I found myself missing my family when I was gone, I would just get out my phone, and I would look at the pictures, and I have like a bazillion pictures on my phone. And so I would look at them, and I'd see, you know, my wife and my kids, and I'd see that picture of them. And of course, it would, it would warm my heart. It would make me long for my family. And it also was a way that I could, you know, kind of show my family off to other people. And so whenever I was on the plane, and I would be, you know, talking to a stranger, we would always talk about our families and our jobs. And they'd be like, well, what's your family like? And I was like, well, let me show you a picture. And I'd show them a picture of my family, and I'd say, those are my kids. Isn't my wife pretty? And look at my boys. They're crazy. And there's little Gracie. She's a princess, you know. And I would boast about my family. I'd show them that picture. And, and the picture, you guys all know this, the picture is nothing more than a representation. It's nothing, it's nothing more than, than a visualization of the real thing, Right? But, but the thing is, and you, you guys know this as well as I do, that when I get home, I don't need the picture anymore. I don't need the picture anymore, right? If I, if I was to sit in my living room with my family and be staring at the picture, and my wife is like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm looking at my family, you know? She'd be like, you're, you're an idiot, you know? Why? Because you don't need the picture when you got the real thing. You got the real thing now. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that marriage is actually intended to be a picture of a greater reality, which is Christ the church. In fact, did you guys know this? I thought this is so fascinating. Did you know that the Bible tells us, Jesus actually tells us that marriage is not going to be in heaven? Did you know that? So when people say, I'll love you forever, baby, you and me forever, it's like, no, not, not accurate, right? Uh, death do you part, that's accurate, right? But here's what Jesus says. He says, when the dead rise, there's neither gonna be, they will neither marry nor be given to marriage. They're gonna be like the angels in heaven. That's what Jesus says. That, that, that marriage is a temporary thing for those of us here on earth, but then when we get to heaven, there's no more marriage. Did you know that? Which has always been so confusing to me because I'm like, what's it gonna be like in heaven? Like when I see Jess, you know? Are we gonna know? Like, am I gonna be like, hey, you know, am I gonna wink at her and be like, remember? You know, like, remember that? You know, am I gonna do that? Or I don't know what it's gonna be like, but I think what it reveals to us is that marriage is a temporary thing that God, that the goal of marriage is not marriage. 
The goal of marriage is that it's to be a picture and it's supposed to help you and it's supposed to help your spouse and it's supposed to help the world understand something. And what is it supposed to show us? An unearthly love, the love that Christ has for the church and the, and the love that the church has for Christ. And here's what I believe, you guys. I believe that you will never fully understand what marriage was intended to be unless you aim at this picture. I believe that when you start living out this picture, as countercultural as it is, but when you have two people that say, we're committed to painting this picture together, that you will start to see the wisdom of God and the power of God, and you will start to experience the love of Christ in a way you've never seen before. I believe that with all my heart. I think that's why God made it. And I think it's an awesome thing that he's created. But unfortunately, sometimes what happens is we settle for a broken picture, a different picture than what God has intended. See, here's what I believe. I believe that the point of marriage is not compatibility, that it's not personal comfort, that it's all about Christ-likeness. It's about being like Jesus and knowing Jesus and making Jesus known to the world that we live in. And that when you live the picture that God intends, you'll see the power of God in your marriage that you've never seen before. So I'm gonna ask the band to come up and, uh, and as they do, like I said, the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk to wives, we're going to talk to husbands, we're going to talk real practical at the next couple of weeks of how do you paint this picture, all right? So if you're a wife, what part do you play in this? And if you're a husband, what part do you play in this? And how do you paint this picture together? So we're going to talk real practical about that. We're going to deal with some really difficult questions, by the way. And so if you have hard questions, I would encourage you to email them and we would love to try to work that in. But like one big question that we want to deal with is if you're a person who's married and you love Jesus and your spouse doesn't, you might be saying, how do I paint this picture with someone who doesn't want to paint this picture? I want to talk about that in the weeks to come. But I want to leave you with these two questions. And this is a small homework assignment for really for everybody in the room, but specifically for married couples. But here, here is the two questions I want to leave you with. And the homework assignment is, I want to challenge you, I want to dare you, I want to double dog dare you to talk through these questions with your spouse or with your fiance. Okay, so here, here it is. The first one is this. What is your picture-perfect marriage? All right, so maybe sometime this week, if you're married, talk about this with your spouse, talk about this with the person you're engaged, or if you're single, I think this is a great question worth thinking through. What is the picture that you have for marriage. In your mind, what does the ideal marriage look like? And does it look anything like Ephesians chapter five? And if not, why not? Just talk about that. And then here's the second question. If you're a married person, I would encourage you to ask this together. What picture do you think your marriage paints to those around you? Right, so just think about it. What is, our, what is the picture that our marriage communicates to our children? What does is, what is the picture of our marriage communicate to our extended family? to our church, to the world? What, what is the picture that our marriage paints? And I would encourage you to take some time and to ask those questions and then come back next week as we get a chance to digest some of those things together, all right? I wanna pray for us, uh, but before, before I do, I, I just want you to take a second with me and I just want you to imagine for a minute, just imagine. Imagine what it would look like to, be, to, to have a marriage, to have a relationship, where each person decided that they were gonna leverage all of themselves, all of their power and all of their ability and all of their strength for the, for the sake of another person. Imagine what it would look like if both people in, in the relationship were committed to that together. Imagine what that would look like. Not out of reverence for each other, but out of reverence for Christ, out of worship to Jesus. And I just want you to get a picture of that. I want you to imagine just for a minute, what would it look like to be in a relationship, in a marriage, where each person in the marriage considered 
their own selfishness as the primary concern in which they were focused? What would that look like? If each person said, the biggest issue in our marriage is my selfishness. What if each person took that stance? What could that look like? What could that look like? And I think when you start to get that picture of what that might look like, where two people are saying, out of reverence for Christ, we want to serve and love each other. And you have two people that are saying, man, you know what? I, I'm going to consider my selfishness as the most, most important thing to deal with in this relationship. As idealistic as that might sound, I think you're starting to get a picture of what Christ is envisioning and the picture that he wants us to paint through marriage. Let's pray together. Well, God, I just, I want to say thank you for marriage. It's a mystery. It's a profound mystery. But we know you're talking about Christ in the church. And Lord, I know we live in a culture where we tend to want to assign whatever value to marriage that we just want to. For many of us, we make marriage whatever we want it to be. But God, because it's created by you, it has a created intent. And so I pray you would help us not to insert our own opinions on what we think marriage should be, but God, help us to be open to looking at what you've designed it to be. And Father, I know that when we talk about this idea of submitting to one another, uh, submit is a more offensive word in our culture than four-letter words are. And yet, God, I believe that there's something powerful and beautiful in it. There's something Christ-like within it. Because Jesus, when I think of your love, I think of how you, were, how you were selfless and how you were sacrificial and how you leveraged all of yourself to serve us. What a beautiful picture. What an unearthly love. You can find that nowhere else. And so, God, I pray that as we even talk through the next couple of weeks to husbands and to wives and to singles, would you help us to understand your heart? That's what we want. We want to know your heart. Would you transform our marriages, Father? Unfortunately, the culture we live in, marriages are not faring well. And God, many of us in this room are struggling in our marriages. But Father, I believe that, that the Bible, as counterintuitive as it might seem, has the answers. And so help us, God. Open our hearts. Help us to come and approach this conversation with humility. We ask it in Jesus' name.